0: Hello. I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute. invitation. Uh, Thanks to all of you for being here today. It's really a pleasure and an honor for me to present my latest book on international peacebuilding at NYU Abu Dhabi, Uh, not only because it's my first time in this part of the world, but also because, uh, as you heard, I'm an NYU grad, so it feels a little bit like going back home. And so let me tell you a few words about uh, what motivated my project, what got me started, and five years later, eventually resulted in my new book, Peaceland. I have spent the past 15 years, or 17 years now, yes, studying international peace-building initiatives. And I've done that mostly in the Democratic Republic of Congo, so I'm gonna show you a map in a few minutes to show you where Congo is. So I've done that mostly in the Democratic Republic of Congo, but I've also worked on many other African and non-African countries. And during my fieldwork, I constantly witnessed a puzzling pattern, which is that international interveners kept using, reproducing, and perpetuating ways of working that they themselves widely viewed as ineffective or even detrimental to peace-building. So for instance, uh, and first let me tell you, by peace building, I mean any and all actions that help promote peace during, before, during, and after a conflict. So when I say peace building, I include all of the actions that United Nations officials would usually categorize as peacemaking, peacekeeping, and also long-term peace building. For me, everything comes together. And by interveners, I mean expatriates foreigners who work in in conflict zones. So that includes donors, uh, diplomats, peacekeepers, other United Nations staff members, and the foreign staff of international and non-governmental organizations. So now let me give you a couple of examples of these kind of puzzling patterns that recur wherever you are in the world. It is now conventional wisdom that local ownership is essential for successful peace building, but uh, local stakeholders are rarely included in the design of international programs. Scholars and practitioners regularly emphasize that using universal peace building templates is ineffective, and that it's very important to adapt the activities to the local context. And yet, interveners often use models that have worked in other conflict zones, but that are not appropriate for the specific local conditions. Local people and interveners themselves deplore the expatriate's tendency to to live in a kind of bubble where they interact mostly with other expatriates and where they lack contact with host populations. And yet, this phenomenon still recurs in virtually all areas of intervention. Why? And to me, the persistence of these inefficient modes of operation is all the more puzzling because interveners are not indifferent or callous. Most of them care a lot about the effectiveness of their actions. They're not stupid. Most of them are intelligent, well-read, well-educated people. Some of them even have a master's or a PhD from NYU or from Columbia University. And the problem is not even that they're oblivious to the consequences of their standard practices. Some of them are actually very uncomfortable with the way international peace building operates on the ground. So my book is an attempt at understanding why interveners contribute to perpetuating modes of operation that they know that we all know are inefficient, ineffective, even counterproductive. What I also found striking when I was in the field is that a number of individuals and organizations ignore or even actively challenge the international peace builders' dominant practices. And these people suggest alternative modes of operation. The existence of these exceptional cases raises two questions for me. First, what can we learn from them in terms of increasing the effectiveness of international peace building? And second, why haven't they managed yet to convince their colleagues to adopt the alternative modes of operation that have proved to be more effective? So, identifying the factors that impact the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of international peace building is of critical importance for scholars like me, for practitioners, and obviously for people living in conflict zones because it's true that interventions can succeed only when warring parties are ready to stop using violence and when local, national, and regional peace-building capacities are strong enough to make peace sustainable. But despite their limitations, external contributions can make the difference between war and peace. There has been a number of studies at the macro level and also at the very micro level that have shown that international support significantly increases the chances of successful peace building. And so when you look at the usual explanations for the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of international peace building, you see that they usually focus on three kinds of things. First, they focus on material constraints. For instance, whether or not peace builders have enough funding to implement all of the projects that are necessary to reestablish peace. Second, they also focus on vested interests. That is, peace builders prioritize either the pursuit of peace, which increases peace building effectiveness, or they prioritize the pursuit of their own national, political, economic, organizational, professional, military security interests, as a result, their project effectively promote these vested interests, but they have little effect on the actual construction of peace. And the last kind of explanation focuses on the imposition of liberal templates and values. Many scholars argue that Western liberal values orient interventions towards strategies that are ill-adapted to local conditions, and that this leads to peace-building failures while interventions that are culturally appropriate are much more effective. Well, what I found in my research and the central message of the book is that the everyday dimensions of international peace-building initiatives on the ground also strongly impact the effectiveness of intervention efforts. And by everyday dimensions, I really mean mundane elements I mean the expatriate's social practice, their standard security procedures, their habitual approaches to collecting information on violence. I also look a lot at the influence of personal relationships uh, and informal practices on formal professional initiatives. And in my book, I show that these everyday practices shape the overall intervention from the bottom up. They enable, they constitute, they help reproduce the macro-level policies, strategies, institutions, and discourses that other political scientists usually study. They also explain the existence and the perpetuation of ways of working that interveners themselves widely view as inefficient, ineffective, even counterproductive. And I want to clarify from the start that my approach and existing explanations are not mutually exclusive, but rather they are complementary. And another important point is that my argument is not that we should eliminate eliminate interventions altogether. There is, in fact, a wide consensus among scholars and host populations that external support and external expertise are often Not always, but often necessary for successful peace building. Foreign interveners have a number of distinct advantages when they are deployed on the ground in conflict zones. And I've listed the most important of these advantages on this slide. So what we need is not to forfeit these contributions, but rather to think about how we can increase the effectiveness of international peace efforts. So in the rest of this talk, I'm gonna tell you a few words about my theory and research methods and about the main contributions of my analysis, and then I'll spend most of the time talking to you about my findings. So first, I will explain how interveners construct knowledge of their areas of deployment, and I will trace the impact that this process of knowledge construction has on peacebuilding effectiveness. So it sounds very abstract and and very boring, the way I say it, but I promise it's fascinating and it's not abstract at all. Um, And then I will look at the everyday routines that make possible the counterproductive practices and narratives that I analyzed in the first part of the talk. And again, I will look at the impact of these everyday routines on peacebuilding effectiveness. And I I will conclude by, Uh, emphasizing, again, the policy implications of my analysis. So, but first, uh, a few words on peace building and the research on peace building. I think that there are two major problems with the existing research on international peacebuilding. The first problem is that most scholars focus on capital cities, headquarters, and on the dynamics of interventions at the national and international levels. Well, in fact, uh, field-based peace builders enjoy substantial leeway in implementing their underground operations. Because the instructions from capital cities and headquarters must always be interpreted, and because there is often a very wide divide between field offices and capital cities and headquarters. So it's very important to analyze the specific dynamics of on the ground peace building. The other major gap is that most analysts focus on macro level policies, strategies, institutions and discourses. And this focus on the macro level creates two significant research gaps that a focus on the everyday practice of peace building on the ground will fill. First, we know a lot now about macro level policies, strategies, institutions, discourses, but as of now, we know much less about the nuts and bolts of peace-building. The banal, the everyday activities that actually make up the bulk of the peace-building work. The other major gap is that we have many fascinating ethnographic analyses of how the cultures and practices of host populations can promote or impair effective peace-building. But as of now, we know much less about how the daily lives of the interveners, uh, their social circles, and the way they approach their work on an everyday basis actually influence macro-level actions and strategies. And a few scholars have started looking at this topic in recent years, Uh, but they focus on humanitarian aid, uh, democratization, space and security, or local ownership. So with my book, I want to contribute to this emerging body of literature by drawing up a portrait of the interveners with their behaviors, customs, everyday lives, and practices. And this approach produces findings that are different from those of existing research. Existing research on international peace building emphasizes differences between interveners. A number of political scientists and anthropologists have shown that different cultures orient the strategies of various organizations, countries, and professional groups in dissimilar ways. So this precludes the coordination that could achieve coherent strategies, and therefore it decreases the overall effectiveness of the international peace efforts. So that's true, but at the same time, my research highlights commonalities among interveners. And in contrast to the body of research on the liberal peace, I show that these commonalities reside less in shared representations like a shared liberal values or a shared liberal agenda. But instead, they are primarily rooted in the everyday practice of peace building on the ground. And this new finding suggests a fresh answer to the question of what affects the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of international peace building. I argue that the everyday practice of peace building on the ground is just as important to study as the content or the ideological dimensions of the programs. And so, to document the influence of the everyday on international peace building initiatives, my research strategy has been to spend more than a year in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So, you can see Congo here on the map. And I did an ethnographic study of a community of interveners who were based in the province of North Kivu, which at the time of my research, uh, and it actually still is the most violent province of the Congo right now. And because it is so violent, violent, it hosts a very wide variety of interveners who come from all kinds of national, professional, organizational, and religious backgrounds. But while this in-depth ethnographic analysis gave me access to the culture of the interveners, I needed to distinguish between those collective understandings that are shared only by peace builders who are deployed in Congo, from those that are shared by all peace builders, independently of where they are deployed. So I conducted research visits to other theaters of intervention to assess the generalizability of my findings from the, the intervention in Congo. I did research in South Sudan, Burundi, Cyprus, Israel and the Palestinian territories and Timor-Leste. And if you're interested, I'm happy to explain during the discussion while I chose these cases as shadow cases for my research. And I also build on my own inter- experience as an intervener in Afghanistan, Kosovo, Congo, and Nicaragua, um, and obviously on practitioners' report and academics' writings on many other international interventions. And in my main field slides, I collected four kinds of data to develop my analysis. So, Field observations uh, in various conflict zones, um, something like I think I have three, more than three years of field observations. Um, I have 294 in-depth interviews uh, with uh, all kinds of interveners and with local authorities, local staff, local populations and that's in addition to 330 interviews that I had conducted for a previous project on peace building for my first book. Uh, And for this project, I also interviewed interveners, but also perpetrators of violence, victims of violence, uh, business people, all kinds of people. So interviews, uh, analysis of multiple documents, of course, and also what was really, really useful for this project was what we call participant observations, uh, which included things like patrolling with United Nations peacekeepers, uh, and implementing uh, reconciliation projects with non governmental organization staff members. So, this I, I really like this picture because that's me trying to pass as a blue helmet and, and going on patrol, you know, with, with the peacekeepers who were behind me. And I find this photo really funny because at the time uh, I, I really thought that I was passing for a blue helmet and I was passing for a peacekeeper. And I was so proud of myself during the whole patrol. Uh, now, uh, you have to realize that it was an Indian contingent uh, and Indian women were not allowed to work as peacekeepers in Congo because it was too dangerous. So first I had a gender problem. Uh, It was really difficult for me just to pass for uh, an Indian peacekeeper. But the thing that was even more problematic, at least from that picture, is that if any of you has a military background, you can see the problem here. Uh, My bulletproof jacket is the wrong way. Um, and I kept patrolling, like being super proud, but being like, this is heaven, it doesn't protect anything. I really wonder where they're carrying these things around. But and nobody told me anything, and it was only when we were back to the base that people were like, well, you know, it's, it's, you should have put it the other way. Okay. Anyway, so that's me being a good ethnographer and really trying to do things like a peacekeeper. Um, but let me focus on what's really, really interesting, which is the findings. So the first part of my book traces how interveners construct knowledge of their areas of deployment, and I first focus on the struggle over which and whose knowledge matters in peacebuilding. In the current international system, the most valued expertise is that of interveners trained in peacebuilding, humanitarian, and development techniques and with extensive experience in a variety of conflict zones. In contrast, the interveners who stay too long in a specific place are considered to have gone native, and they are thus discredited. The consequence is that of all the expatriate peace builders that I met, only a few had pre-existing knowledge of their countries of deployment. So Thematic expertise. So, thematic expertise will be something like knowledge of human rights or gender issues or election organizations. So, valuing thematic expertise over local knowledge results from various social dynamics, including the process of professionalization of international peace building, which has increased the effectiveness of intervention programs on the ground. But valuing thematic expertise over local knowledge also results in standard ways of working in the field that decrease the overall effectiveness of the international peace efforts. For instance, it legitimates the deployment of people who do not speak any of the local languages. Even though on the ground, everyone identifies the intervener's lack of linguistic ability as one of the main obstacles to effective peace building. It also leads to high rotation among interveners, which has a lot of negative consequences, like a lack of institutional memory and a lack of understanding of local contexts. Even more importantly, valuing thematic expertise of our local knowledge also asserts the superiority of the international staff who are viewed as having the consequential knowledge of our local employees. In virtually all aid and peace-building organizations, whether diplomatic, um, international, or non-governmental, expatriates are in management positions, and local people make up the staff. Very few local people make it into leadership positions in their countries of origin. To move up the hierarchy, they have to go abroad and become expatriates. And let me tell you a story that illustrates how the very fact of being local changes the way interveners relate to a person and his ideals. So one of my interviewees, Michel, was a Congolese businessman. He's still a Congolese businessman. And Michel is from a mixed background. He has Belgian, Congolese, and Portuguese ancestors. And Michel was very frustrated by the way interveners behaved toward him and toward other Congolese elites during meetings. He thought that interveners were talking down to local counterparts, and that they didn't take local ideas into account. So, during a meeting abroad, Michel conducted an experiment. Instead of introducing himself as Congolese, uh, as he usually did, uh, he pretended that he came from Puerto Rico and the approach in the meeting was completely different. He had much more credibility and much more influence when he passed as an outsider. Another consequence of the fact that intervention structures value thematic expertise so much more than local knowledge is that intervention organizations very rarely solicit local input in the design and planning of their efforts. And this approach creates resentment among local people. And it is at the root of the phenomenon of local contestation, resistance, and adaptation that leads to the failure of so many projects and programs and that other scholars like Oliver Richmond and Roger McEntee have documented so well. So of course, uh, local partners regularly resist international programs uh, for their own benefits, uh, for instance, because they want to pursue their own personal, economic, political, social, uh, military, security agendas or just because they don't care about building peace. But not all local people have this kind of vested interests, And instead, many of them truly care about building peace in their countries, and most of them would truly benefit from very successful international peace building programs and for more stable conditions. So, it's really important that we understand why the people who would in fact benefit from successful international peace-building programs instead reject or distort them. And the main reason is the premium that interveners place on thematic expertise over local knowledge. In all of the countries in which I worked, local stakeholders complained that international peace-builders were, and I quote, arrogant, and that they provided aid in a humiliating manner. And my interviewees emphasized that the arrogance resided in thinking that the international ways of working is better than the local ones, and in failing to pay attention to local ideals. And what's absolutely critical for the research on peace building is that I heard these kind of criticisms against all kinds of international programs and all kinds of international projects. So not only those that were obviously shaped by liberal values, like programs that, for instance, uh, insist upon organizing elections, but I also heard these criticisms against programs that had absolutely no relationships with Western or liberal values, like programs that uh, build foreign rather than local models of toilets to respond to water and sanitation emergencies. And my interviewees were very clear. They said that they do not resist or reject the international programs because of their content, uh, such as the supposed Western or liberal characters of the program. Instead, they reject the very act of imposition, regardless of whether or not they like the strategies and the values that the programs convey. And the international and non-governmental organizations that fight against these trends are excellent illustrations of the advantages inherent to valuing local knowledge on par with thematic expertise. The few comparative evaluations of their efforts that exist show that these organizations are much more effective at promoting programs that are locally owned and locally supported and therefore effective and sustainable. So the next chapter of the book studies the everyday manner in which in these circumstances, the international peace builders, those that are not exceptions, make sense of their environments. And I showed that interveners face multiple obstacles when they try to uh, collect and analyze data on their areas of deployment. And I trace the key consequences of the resulting lack of understanding of local contexts. And one of these key consequences is that the lack of understanding of local conditions regularly entices international peace builders to rely on simple and often overly simplistic narratives to design their intervention strategies. So simplistic narratives will be something like, oh, uh, the war in Afghanistan, everything is about drugs and and, uh, religion or uh, the war in Colombia, it's all about drugs as well, or the war in Congo is an ethnic war, or the war in Sudan is an ethnic war. Um, So adapting these dominant narratives offers a useful way out of the predicament that international peace builders face given the poor quality of the information and analysis that they have. Dominant narratives emphasize a few themes on which to focus and interveners can then believe that they have a grasp of the most important features of the situation instead of feeling lost and deprived of the knowledge that they need to properly accomplish their work. But I develop an in-depth case study of the impact of dominant narratives on the conflict in Congo to eliminate the perverse consequences of this practice. So in brief, in 2010 and 2011 when I was doing the research for the book, but even still now, three narratives dominate the discourse on Congo and they orient the intervention strategies there. Um, And and they focus really on three three themes. The first one is uh, that they emphasize a primary cause of violence, the illegal exploitation and trafficking of natural resources like gold, diamond, coltan, etc. The second is a main consequence, sexual abuse of women and girls. You've probably heard of Congo before, and usually it's, uh, it's associated to things like it's the rape capital of the world. And the third narrative is state building, a main solution, reconstructing state authority. So these narratives achieved prominence because they offered straightforward explanations for the violence, they also suggested feasible solutions and they resonated with foreign audience. And thanks to the reliance on these dominant narratives, foreign and Congolese elites have managed to put the Congolese conflict on the agenda of influential decision makers in capital cities and headquarters. So that's brilliant, it's fantastic. The problem is that the reliance on these dominant narratives and on the solutions that they recommended has also led to results that clashed with their intended purposes, including an increase in human rights violations on the ground. The focus on mineral resource exploitation has diverted attention from other causes of violence, and thus it has decreased the overall effectiveness of the international peace efforts. The focus on sexual abuse has raised the status of sexual exploitation. It has transformed it into an effective bargaining tool for combatants, and therefore it has increased the use of sexual violence on the ground. And finally, the focus on state building has merely enabled the Congolese government and the Congolese army to become more effective perpetrators of human rights violations against Congolese populations. And of course, a number of Congolese people are interviewed for the project. Uh, in addition to the exceptional interveners that I mentioned before, all of these people have tried to reintroduce more complexity in our analysis of Congo, but thus far with very little success. So the second part of the book Looks at the everyday routines that make possible the counterproductive practices and narratives that I just told you about. And I look again at the intended consequences of these routines, such as enabling interveners to function in conflict zones and enabling their organizations to help the host country build peace. But I also look at the unintended consequences, notably the fact that these everyday routines construct and maintain firm boundaries, a firm separation between interveners and local people, and the fact that they perform, they make visible, they perpetuate, and they reinforce an image of the intervener's superiority over local people, which these local people obviously strongly resent. So for the sake of time, let me focus on the three elements that are the most influential in constructing the boundaries, the separation, between interveners and local people. The first element is that interveners share a common official goal, to help the country of intervention and its people. And that's something very clear in the quote that I put at the top of the slide. Here, we're all part of a club. We're all here to help Congo. And there are, of course, numerous internal differences in the process of reaching this common goal. There are also different degrees of motivation. But the shared objectives delineate the boundaries of the interveners group. It defines who belongs to the community and who does not belong to the community. Foreign business people, for instance, are excluded for the simple reason that they do not share the same official goal. And so the interveners group include people who come from all kinds of national, organizational, professional, and religious backgrounds. And what's important is that the presence of this community of interveners does not preclude the existence of the internal divisions and tensions that other scholars have documented. And if you're interested, I'm happy to explain during the discussion how the similarities coexist with the differences. But what's really, really interesting is that on the ground, two elements transform this loose group with a lot of internal divisions and tensions into an actual block with firm boundaries. The first element is that interveners share a common experience of life in conflict zones. And that goes well beyond the shared characteristics that we all know about. Uh, like the fact that interveners drive in big SUVs, uh, that they have favorite bars, inside jokes, favorite topics of discussion. Beyond these superficial characteristics, I show that the feeling of belonging to a specific group is rooted primarily in the fact of being a foreigner, living and working with no family life, constant fear, lack of basic facilities, and usually a job that is emotionally draining. And the quote that I put on the slide is typical of what I heard during my interviews and what I observed and experienced during my fieldwork. In war situations, you're in it together. In a country that you do not know, where people speak other languages that you do not understand. We, interveners, we interact with local people all day long. But there are times when you want to eat your own food, speak your own language, listen to, to your own music. And at that point, my interviewee stopped and she looked me in the eyes and she said, You and I, we have millions of things in common. And you have to realize, I've never met this person before. And very clearly, we have completely different backgrounds in terms of national origin, profession, organizational affiliations. And yet she tells me, you and I, we have millions of things in common. You and Congolese, you have two or three things in common apart from work. This is why the expats go together. Because the expats in any country need to have a place where they can go and sit down just so that they are in their own world. It is necessary to keep you seen and anchored. And I heard this kind of deep, very emotional talk from all kinds of interveners, no matter where they came from, which functions they had, and what organizations they worked for. The other element that helps reinforce the feeling of community, despite all of the internal divisions and tensions, is the presence of others against whom interveners can constrict their group identity. And these others are notably the so-called locals, uh, meaning the local authorities and populations who are the intended beneficiaries of the international intervention. And again, I think that's something very clear from the quote on the slide. You and I, we have millions of things in common. You and Congolese, you have two other things in common apart from work. And it's important to note that local people share responsibility for the separation that exists between them and interveners. In many settings, local people treat all expatriates as alike and separate from themselves, regardless of the intervener's national origin, profession, and organizational affiliations. And this reinforces the sense of community among interveners, and it further widens the split between the two groups. Local people also often make it extremely difficult for international interveners to integrate in their local communities. And that's something that's again very clear, I think, from the quote that I put on the slide. So I'm gonna let you read it, but I wanna tell you why I think this quote, I I love this quote because this is a quote from one of the exceptional interveners uh, that I had interviewed. He had spent eight years in Congo He had learned local languages. He had tried to develop strong friendship with Congolese people. He had married a Congolese woman, and he had a child who was half Congolese. And yet, as you can see here, he felt that only his wife and his immediate relatives fully accepted him, while none of his other contacts did. And that's a complaint that I heard many times when I was talking with the interveners who tried to break the boundaries, the separation between them and local people. And my point here is that turning to other expatriates for support is a perfectly understandable response to the daily difficulties of working on the ground in conflict zones. It enables interveners to function in the difficult environments that they face. But this habit also has counterproductive consequences that decrease the overall effectiveness of the international peace efforts. And, and there are many other everyday routines that interveners have to follow on the ground just to be able to live and work in, in every day. Uh, lots of routines that actually have the same kind of counter, counterproductive consequences. Take the very fact of having to help be your primary objective and identifying local authorities and populations as beneficiaries. Well, this actually embodies a claim to the moral high ground. And that was something evident in the saying that constantly recurred in my interviews in Burundi, South Sudan, and Congo. The hand that gives is always higher than the hand that receives. Take also the intervener's uh, security routines, uh, such as driving with the doors locked and the windows closed, or living in these big compounds with a a lot of barbed wires around them. Well, these security routines, again, are perfectly understandable responses to danger, right? But at the same time, they further separate expatriates from local people. In the words of a Kenyan interviewee, They transform expatriates into other kinds of human beings. They also reinforce the data collection and analysis problems that interveners face because they curtail the interveners' understanding of the local realities that they want to change. And in the book, I look at many other everyday practices and narratives, uh, such as striving to remain neutral and impartial, advertising actions, perpetually writing reports, and quantifying the results of actions. And again, I show that all of these routines are perfectly understandable responses to the daily difficulties of intervening on the ground in conflict zones. But these habits have numerous counterproductive consequences that decrease the chances of success of international efforts. And again, the interveners who develop personal and social relationships with their local counterparts, who forego standard security routines, who avoid advertising their actions, basically the interveners who break the patterns that I just told you about, these people end end up implementing projects that are much more effective. So, Overall, my project and my book suggest a new approach to the study of international peacebuilding. An approach focused on the everyday practice of peacebuilding on the ground. This new approach produces findings that are different from those of existing research. While existing research on international peacebuilding emphasizes differences among interveners, my research highlights commonalities among them. And in contrast to the body of research on the liberal peace, I showed that these commonalities reside less in shared values or shared representations, but they lie instead in the everyday practice of peace building on the ground. And these new findings suggest a fresh answer to the question of what affects the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of international peace building. Macro-level policies, strategies, institutions, and discourses are not the only determinant of peace-building effectiveness. The everyday practice of peace-building on the ground also matters tremendously. And it is by looking at these everyday practices and habits that we can understand why interveners contribute to perpetuating modes of operation that they know that we all know are inefficient, ineffective, even counterproductive. Everyday practices, habits, narratives are perfectly understandable responses to the daily difficulties of intervening on the ground in conflict zones. They enable interveners to function in the difficult environments that they face, but they also have numerous counterproductive consequences that decrease the overall effectiveness of the international peace efforts. And of course, I have developed a lot of policy recommendations based on this analysis. I have something like 30 pages of that in the book. Uh, But the time for my presentation is almost up, Uh, so I'm just gonna take one minute to emphasize the main ideas. International interveners could rebalance the role of local and thematic knowledge by following the model of the exceptional organizations that I've mentioned during this talk. So concretely, that would mean changing recruitment and promotion practices for interveners, relying much more on local employees, and creating tools and structures to gather local input from intended beneficiaries and from local communities. We could also help break the boundaries between interveners and local people by promoting socialization between interveners and their local counterparts, by creating structures For better relationships between interveners and their local partners, and by convincing interveners to forego standard security routines and the requirement to advertise their actions. And local people could further help break these boundaries by changing the way they routinely interact with local peace builders. This is a very brief summary of a 330-page book and of 15 years of research. So, of course, my analysis is much more detailed than what I've been able to explain in a 30-40-minute presentation. And I'd I'd be more than happy to give you more details on any of my points during the discussion if you're interested.